Welcome to another episode of Reggae Uprising podcast. Here for you every Wednesday, connecting people of the diaspora through knowledge, inspiration and stories all backed by a soundtrack of sweet reggae music. Normally, I have a guest every week who shares their overstanding as well as seven reggae selections. Now, I hope you enjoyed last week's episode where I did something a little bit different. Uh, the COVID-19 special, where it was all about an hour of pure reggae music dedicated to those lost to COVID-19. Those caring for a health and well-being through the crisis, as well as tunes of nostalgia, inspiration and liberation. Now, if you enjoy tuning into Reggae Uprising podcast every Wednesday, you might enjoy my other weekly shows just as much. As well as being a host, I'm also a singer who produces reggae shows, Reggae Uprising every Monday and High Vibes Friday every Friday. You can view them via Daniil Music on Facebook and Instagram and also leave those links in the description for you. Now, this week's episode is also going to be a little different from what you're used to, as it is a financial special. I know that with the current lockdown situation, finances are at the forefront of everyone's mind. So when interviewing this week's guest, there was so much information discussed that I felt it would be helpful to our community that I have decided to do two parts of the interview as I couldn't squeeze it all into one hour. I hope the information will answer some questions, ease some anxiety and inspire new ways of approaching money. So this is a part one and uh, make sure you subscribe so you can stay straight up to date with part two, which is going to be out next Wednesday. So let's get things started with the first selection from today's guest, which is Peter Honingale, Perfect Lady. Say you are my perfect lady. Lady, hey, your love, I can. 
get started today, I would like to add a disclaimer that my guest is not, I repeat, is not a financial advisor and that these are just their personal opinions. The statements and opinions discussed by my guest are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of myself or Reggae Uprising podcast. Reggae Uprising podcast and I do not take any responsibility for the views of my guest. Today's guest is an award-winning entrepreneur, strategist, speaker, broadcaster and BBC producer. She has nearly 20 years experience in running her own business, developing business growth strategies for other SMEs and leading organisations as a non-executive director. I would like to welcome Marisha Stevenson. Greetings and welcome, Marisha. Hey, how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. You're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. Now, we've just heard your first selection. Why did you choose that selection? Do you know what? Uh, my love for reggae music is the stuff that I grew up on. Um, and so I just think about getting up on a Saturday morning when your mum would say, it's time to clean the house. And that song would be one of the songs that would be blaring through the house while I was reluctantly hoovering. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it just brings back memories. It just sort of brings back memories of my childhood and just, you know, makes me think about one of those songs that you kind of learnt the lyrics to before you even understood what any of those lyrics meant. Right, um, right. So, yeah, it brings me back, brings me back. Okay. Um, as I ask all of my guests on the show, what is your heritage? So I am Caribbean heritage, um, I suppose second generation in terms of being here in the UK. My grandparents uh, were were born in Jamaica from Clarendon, actually, in Jamaica. And um, they came over to the UK as part of sort of Windrush, um, late 50s and uh, yeah late 50s so half of my mother's siblings were actually born in jamaica and she being one of the younger ones um was born here in the uk um and so yeah so i am very proudly caribbean love that love that um so like when you were growing up um what were your experiences with money and finances at home or at school um and like what was there anything when you were growing up that kind of encouraged you to go to learn more um, financial, sorry, to get more financial knowledge and want to, you know, share that wisdom with other people? Was there any particular point growing up where, you know, you were inspired to get involved in the financial world? Insofar as getting involved with finances, that was more so as a young adult, actually. I mean, my experiences growing up and my memories growing up of, of finances was that for me, my mother was a magician. She never seemed to have it, but always seemed to find it. And she was the kind of person where whatever you fundamentally needed, and in fact, sometimes even wanted she was the kind of woman where she would look for a way and she would find a way. And both my parents, actually because of their own upbringing, I think, were very keen on education, um, both of them. And, you know, my mom's attitude was she 
wasn't educated maybe to a level that she would have wanted to have been and so she was going to do her very best to ensure that I was um and so part of that I mean I I actually went to a grammar school um and in so doing um for example I went to the kind of school where we had a very set uniform and at the beginning of each year there was almost a spec list of all the things that you would need for the year and I mean I'm talking about, I, I don't know if any of the listeners will be aware of it, but the, if you remember a shop called James Beatty's that used to be similar to Rackham's uh, in terms of its makeup, and that was the that was one of only two shops um, in Wolverhampton, which is where I went to school, where you could actually get my school uniform. Um, it was extremely expensive. I mean, I remember in those days, just for a blazer, it was like £50. And I mean, you know, we're talking, you know, the 90s now. It was a little while back. So at that point, you know, it was it was some serious money. I think, I think for a year's equipment, and when I say equipment, that would include things like I would have to have my own hockey stick or tennis racket and things like that on top of my school uniform and instruments that I played and all of that. I mean, you'd be looking at a minimum of £600 maybe just to equip me for a year. And my mum would always find it. So I grew up not really understanding that much about money, but just realising that I had a mother who seemed to magic it out of the air. And that had a two pronged approach there was a good side of it which has always meant that I'm very optimistic and I always think no there's always a way but the negative is that I never knew how she did it so when I became an adult and had to start paying my own bills I was a little bit lost because I didn't really understand money and then it would turn into mom dad I need your help and then you expect them to magic it up out of nowhere there comes a point when as a young adult you can't pay your bills and you're broke And there was that point when I started to think I actually need to understand how finances work. But I've always been a bit of a hustler. So I always making money was something I figured out how to do. But I always used to spend it very quickly. (laughs) So, yeah, you could get yourself into trouble. So that was really your kind of motivation that, hold on, I've got no money. I've got to figure out how this works properly because I still want my nice things, but I need, you know. I need to figure out a way of utilising it better. That was basically your first motivation. Yeah, it really was. And I mean, outside of that, it was also, you know, very teenage motivations. So, you know, I, again, like I say, my mother's always been one where she, she she's always striving for the best for her children, as many parents do. But as a consequence of that, I mean, I got my first car when I was 17. Um, you know, my, my 17th birthday present was driving lessons. And I passed my driving test two months after my birthday. And, you know, my, my reward for that was a car. And, you know, there was a point when my mum was like, listen, I bought you a car. I've paid the insurance for you to drive it around. But in terms of petrol and, you know, general maintenance, now it's your job. So, again, you, you start being in a place where you want to earn money because, you know, you, you, you want to live a life. You want to do what teenagers do, run up and down on street, drive up and down all over the place and, you know, do all of those things. And she always instilled working hard um in all of us so in fairness i mean i I can say this now there used to be a time where if you didn't have a national insurance number you couldn't even you know you you could blag it a little bit Mm. and start the work and come with the national insurance number a little bit later on so in all honesty i mean i started working when i was 15 
um, and started off working in shops or um, worked in a well-known chicken uh, company uh, that uh, people are missing right now in the current circumstances. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, cleaned, um, did care work. I did a lot of things as, as a youngster. And on top of that, because I was well-educated and discovered that a lot of my mum's friends needed things like letters writing to the council or complaints that they were making. I used to charge them to do their CVs and write their letters and do all of that. So I got good at making money very early. But as I say, it also was because I had expenses quite early. So I had to, to fund a lot of what I was wanting to do. So in terms of your mum, because I'm very intrigued now, did you ever find out her strategies? Did she ever share that wisdom with you? Do you know what? What I came to realise is that my mum has never been afraid to work. Never. And she will engage in many of the little strategies and stuff that at the time you weren't aware of. So even things like being in a partner. You know, my mum's been in partners for years and years and years years and you know those would be the things where she would she would strategize she would say okay I know For those that... people that don't know what that is could you just explain yeah so a partner is a, effectively a saving scheme and it's one where you know historically when Caribbean families in particular did come across um, for Windrush and things like that they were in a position where they couldn't buy their own properties for example in the 60s and they'd be in, and they'd be in a situation where banks would banks wouldn't even think about lending them money in some instances they wouldn't even be able to access bank accounts and actual financial products so um, in the African community they call it susu in the Caribbean community we call it partner in the Asian community they call it committee and what it was is that people would effectively put money into a pot so let's say it's 10 pounds each week you put into a pot and at the, and each week somebody gets that collective pot until everybody's had their round of money and then you start again so you know those things are financed everything from the new tv and washing machine that was needed to the deposit for your house for to all of those things and you know for example my mom would employ those sorts of strategies she wasn't never afraid to work for many years she's had more than one job you know she was a hustler and in all fairness my father wasn't out of the picture my father did play his part as well. My dad's always been very shrewd with money. And if my mom has been the hard worker in the sense of she'll go out and she'll graft, my dad's been the smart worker. So when my dad started to realise that investment was a real thing, running businesses was a real thing, that was something that he did. And I mean, my dad has only had a, a job, a J-O-B, for six months I believe of my entire life my dad has only ever been self-employed or run his own businesses um and so I feel like I somehow benefited from the two of them I learned how to work hard but then I started to look at my dad and realize that there was a way to work smart so do you know what inspired him to take that route instead of you know going with the consensus and going with the um you know employed what made him choose to go out and be self-employed was he inspired by a family member or or do you know why he chose that i think he, well i think there's two things i'd say to that my my father's side and, and his family in general i would say overall they're very entrepreneurial i mean when i look at um the majority of my cousins 
um, and so on on my dad's side of the family a lot of them run businesses even if they're just quote side hustles um, you know they're all doing and many of them are doing something quite entrepreneurial so I think part of it is is clearly just down to kind of the way we are as a family um, but what I would also I think say where my dad's concerned I think it was more to do with oppression I think it was more to do with not having opportunities I mean at the end of the day when he when he trained up to be a mechanic, he initially was a uh, car mechanic. And when he trained up to do a mechanic, I remember him saying that he managed to get a apprenticeship at Quick Fit, I think it was. Um, and he was a sweeper boy. You know, that literally his only job was to keep the garage clean. They wouldn't even let him near the cars. And because he was a learner and wanted to learn and wanted to kind of get better, he, you know, he would watch and he would learn and he would work out what they were doing with cars and how they were fixing them and doing all of that. And when he wasn't necessarily in a position to then be granted that employment or given that opportunity that somebody else was, you know, he would say, well, actually, no, there's a way I can make myself. So he started off you know very much a car mechanic and over the years just frankly got sick of fixing cars all the time and then he started selling parts and then he started renting out um unit space too so he he bought a huge warehouse at one point and he separated it up and he was renting it out to other mechanics and other part sellers and you know so over the years it's like he's just He's, I think he's learned by being in the trenches. That would be the phrase that he would use. And he's like, you know, when you when you sit in the trenches and you see what's going on, he's learned. And he's always trying to think about, frankly, how to level up or, as we like to joke these days, how we make more money and do less work. So <laughs> as time goes by, he's kind of sat back and studied what's going on until he can find another way um you know and and he worked his way up to property investment and you know now my dad very proudly likes to announce that he calls it semi-retired most people would call it pretty much retired but <laughs> he he says according to him and i believe him because he says he works eight hours a month now the reason why i say i believe him is i suspect that some months it's probably less than that but he works eight hours a month and other than that he likes to spend time in his armchair and doing the things that he likes to do, including playing his golf and doing all of these things. Um, and, you know, and that's how he lives. He's pretty, he, he's financially independent um, and financially free. So he, he's no longer required to work and he just does what he likes. Wow. I couldn't think of any better role models to grow up with. That That's, that's amazing, that is. Um, so in terms of you... Um, getting into the financial sector and choosing it as a career, what steps did you take? How did you get into um, that line of work? Do you know, I suppose to an extent, maybe quite accidentally, it's funny because I remember when I was at school and I was 11 years old and it was the first time that people um, started to ask us questions about what do you want to do when you grow up? Um, and I always used to say, I want to be a lawyer and a management consultant. And I remember sort of one day looking through the career book and seeing basically what a management consultant did and how much they earned and just going, yep, that sounds like me. Um, and, and sort of having that ambition for a long time. And then, you know, frankly, as I say, what happened was when I entered the world of work, 
Um, I did so alongside study. So as I say, I started working when I was 15. I was still at school. I went through sixth form. I was still working. By the time I left sixth form, I was pretty much working full time. And when I went to university, I was working full time. So I struggled at first to juggle the responsibilities of full time work and full time education. Um, But as I say, by then I had expenses and I needed to work. So I got into a situation where I, I, I did one, I, I dropped out of, I don't know if many people know this, but I actually dropped out of university the first time round. So I went to uni at 18, as you do, and before the end of the year, well, I got about, I just about got through a year. Um, and at the end of the year, I dropped out because I was just like, this is too much. I wasn't enjoying my course at the time. And I remember thinking, this isn't really taking me in a direction of what I want to do. And then I did a year in full-time work. But what you soon realise when you don't have a certain, well, I say that, what you can find yourself in a situation where you don't have a level of education, at the end of the day, you're a black girl, do you know what I mean? So you still have all of the prejudices that come along with that. And then you're at the bottom of the pile. And one of the things that I realised was I was like, I had too many people telling me what to do and I didn't like it. And I remember thinking, I, I, I didn't like it. I was just like, I'm not about this. Because most of the time I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure I know as much, if not more than you. And then you're in here acting like you're the bee's knees. I'm the same for me. So then I was like, well, what am I going to do about it? And so I decided to go back to university. And this time I changed direction. So when I went back to university, I went back to study business. And um, and I always say to people, it's ironic that I became the youngest mature student in history because I, I was a classed as a mature student at that point because I dropped out of the standard route, but I was 19. Right, okay. And in order to manage um, my responsibilities, I went back to university as a part-time student at 19 because by this time, to use my mum's phrase, she had deal with man. So I was engaged. I was already living outside of the household. I'd left home, living with my fiancé, working full-time. Still had to do that now because I've got bills and I've got a house to run. Um, But I also want to get my education because I don't like the fact that all these people are telling me what to do. So... um, So while I was at university, I actually then started working in banking. I was a trainer for a bank. I didn't mind that kind of job because I basically worked out that in order to get a level of autonomy in what I was doing, there were certain jobs that were going to work for that and and some that weren't. So ultimately, you go, right, I want to be a manager because I want to tell people what to do instead of being told. However... When I didn't have, in order to become a manager at one point, you needed the experience, but it's a catch-22 because you don't get management experience until you're managing, but you can't get the experience, you can't get the job until you're experienced. So I found myself in that catch-22 in my early 20s. So what I then did was I went into training because I worked out that the skill set was similar. Right. I became so I became a trainer at a bank and frankly you know I just worked my butt off and I did it to kind of prove myself because as I said I wanted to climb up the ladder and I remember going into that team um, it was an American bank I was working for actually at the time I went in there as a trainer I was the youngest one on the team and in fact I won't tell you the story now but it's ironic how I got that job because the job didn't exist and I got sent for an interview for a job that had already gone 
But the guy felt sorry for me and just said, you know what, let's just have a coffee and a chat as you're here. And he ended up offering me a job that didn't exist. Anyway, I went into this job as the youngest person um, on the team. And nine months later, I got promoted into managing the team. Wow. Um, and, I, and as I say, I really just worked hard. And then at that point, you know, I started to take advice, shall we say, from my dad. I started to listen to him. <laughs> After all these years of not listening, I started to pay a bit of attention. And my dad started saying to me, right, you need to align yourself in certain ways. You need to get involved in politics. You need to start looking at getting on boards. You need to start doing certain things. And, you know, again, as a black female, I was probably less offensive. I'll use that term than a black male. So I found that I could get into doors that even my father couldn't get into because he was a man. And not because he wasn't educated or skilled enough, because by this point he had obviously far more more experience than me, but we would apply for the same thing and I'd get in and he wouldn't. And he he guided me in that sense. And so by the time I was 23, I was working in banking um, and really then learned a lot about the overall banking system. Um, I was a non-executive board member, well, board director for... Um, what used to be called um, City Pride in Birmingham, which was basically an organisation that ran the city. Um, I was the youngest person on that board. And um, I was getting ready to, to finish university. Okay. Wow. And and what was the progression from, from there? Well, then I decided I really wanted to run my own business. So I, I, I've always kind of, as I say, had side hustles. It's always always been part of my life I think well from I was at school do you know what I mean I used to find ways to sell things and then you know 19 I was definitely on the side hustle route always had a way of making extra money so I then got it into my head that I wanted to run my own business and by this point I was quite proficient in the training world and I was like right I'm going to run my own training company and on my 24th birthday me and my my best friend we set up a company called Promote Training and Recruitment. She was a recruitment consultant. I was the training consultant, and we were, you know, going to make millions. And I'll never forget that day because we celebrated. That we, we, again, those were the days where you could go to what was then Birmingham Library. It isn't now, but the library in Birmingham, they used to have a company's house section in there. You could go in and register your company on the day, come out with your certificate of incorporation, and we came out with it, and, you know, we hugged and cried and said this is the beginning <laughs> this is the beginning you know we were dead chuffed so a year later the business failed but basically um i and i remember leaving the bank and my boss at, at the time saying we don't want you to go i mean you know what how much do we need to pay you to for you to stay you know we, we'll, we'll start talking what package we need to put on the table I'm, no 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 this is my destiny i must go yeah <laughs> <laughs> And I spent the subsequent year broke, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And um, in the end, we we folded the business after a year because we weren't really making any money. But at the same, but then my friend, my best friend, fell pregnant, and she was like, "No, obviously, you know, circumstances are changing now. She's having a baby, and so on and so forth." So we said, "Okay, let's 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 wind up the company, put it on the shelf. We can always return to it in future." And I went back into the job market at that point. Um, just to kind of recoup some income 
Um, but again, I tried to use my brain. So at this point, I've realised that I may not have made any money, but I have now gained a whole host of experience in just trying to run this business. Um, and I went back into the job market, and this time I went in. So I was still working in the world of finance, but more specifically insurance at this point. Um, and I went back into insurance um, as a effectively as a centre manager, um, and I increased my salary by about 10 grand from what I was earning prior. Wow. Um, so I got a nice little uplift. I remember actually, because I remember the first time I got I, I got my, my, my paycheck, if you like, and I hyperventilated because I'd never seen so much money in one <laughs> I, did, I, did, I literally hyperventilated. I was just like, <gasps> and then I was, I was just like, it's a really good day. <laughs> <laughs> So excited. Um, but yeah, so I spent, I can't remember, I think it might have been about a year and a half, maybe two years um, working for the insurance company. And again, you know, and it was funny because I got that job because the interview process was, um, you had to do an assessment day. I, I think I had to go to Swindon or somewhere like that and do this assessment day and that would dictate whether you got an interview or not. Well, I was a trainer. So when I saw the assessment day, I remember thinking, oh, I know what they're testing for. Like, they wouldn't tell you. And if you weren't privy to it, you wouldn't have known. But I knew what they were testing for. So when I started to clock that, I was like, oh, this should be okay. Well, it turned out that I got the second highest score in the country ever. Oh, my um, gosh. So I was recruited in as their youngest centre manager ever. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it was nice. Do you know what I mean? It was nice, but again, it became a space to, to gain experience. And, and the problem is, is that by this point, what I've realized is that I've got this fire in my belly and somewhere along the line, I don't hold jobs, not because I can't, but because I get to understand how to do the job or how to, you know, grow in that particular area. And once I understand it, I'm bored and I want to move on to the next thing. And in organisations, they didn't progress me fast enough for me to stick around. So I would just leave. Um, and so I left, when, when I left that job, I did it differently from the first time. So I made sure that I, I built up my consultancy and training business to a certain level before I left. But again, I just decided, I told them one day, that's it, I'm leaving. Um, and I left. And at that point, I still actually run to this day that same company, but just under a different name. Um, and that was when I was 26. Okay. So um, can you give us an overview of your transition from there to where you are now? Yeah, so, in, you know, what's really funny was <clears throat> I left that job. I decided I was going to run my own company again, this time with some learning. I did it on my own now. So I was just focusing on business consultancy, um, strategic growth, marketing, branding, that sort of thing. And what brought me to the point of educating people about finances kind of came twofold. So um, <laughs> my then fiancé, used to say to me all the time, oh, you know, you, you've got a face for TV, you've got a voice for radio, Have you, you know, you should do radio, you should do radio. For me, radio, my experience of radio was pirate radio stations. And I was like, listen, I am no DJ and I am not Lady M 
or anything else, okay? I don't know how to scratch a mix, and I don't know why you keep talking about radio. It didn't make any sense to me. And then when I started the business, you see, I was always very good at cold calling, and that was because I, I was brought up as a Jehovah's Witness, so I've heard no many a time, so I'm not afraid of it. And so when I wanted to get the business started, I said, okay, I'm going to make some phone calls and I'm just going to call strangers and visit premises and start saying to these people, can I do some marketing and can I do some um, work for you? And one of the doors that I ended up knocking at the time was the African Caribbean Millennium Center. And I phoned them up and I said, what I can't understand is how we as a black community have this fantastic resource in Birmingham and nobody knows about it. And I want to come in and sort out your marketing. And Martin Blissett was the CEO at that time. And he invited me in to, um, to to meet him. And after an hour's meeting turned into a three-hour meeting and tour of the whole building, he looked at me and he said, you've got a face for TV and a voice for radio. Have you ever considered it? And I laughed and I said, my fiance says that to me all the time, but I think that's just because he likes me. And he said, and, and Martin said, no, Marisha, I think you might have a point. And I said, but I'm not a DJ. He said, you don't have to be a DJ to go on the radio. And he started giving me all of the different options. And he said, why don't you have a think about it? Go away, come up with a proposal and come back to me. And that's really what became the birth of the financial style. And I went back to him with a proposal and I said, if I'm going to do radio, I want to talk about business. Because at this point, I I myself used to listen to radio for a lot. Um, I liked listening to things like the Money Programme and so on. And in fact, again, I got that off my dad. My dad always used to watch those programmes and listen to them and it got me into the habit as well. But there was nobody my age that was speaking about money and business in a language that was easy for me to understand. And as I was developing my business, I was coming across a lot of people in my age group. I mean, some of them we now know to be OBEs and MBEs and so on, who I was doing business with. And they were all saying the same thing. We need mentors. We need guidance. We need to learn. And sometimes, you well, one thing I learned is sometimes the best way to learn is to teach and so I said, you know what, I want to do I want to do a radio program about business and finance and I want to get banks in and different types of businesses in and people in to talk about this and to educate us. And I, I remember Martin saying to me, Marisha, it will never work with a little community radio station. You're never going to get Barclays to come in here. But I did. And, you know, 14 years down the road, the financial style is still around. Love that, love that, love that. Obviously, we're going to leave the links in the description so people can check that out most definitely. Um, but for now, we're going to go on to your next selection, which is Berry's Hammond. They're going to talk. Why did you pick this one? I love Berry's Hammond. Again, it's more, it, it's more childhood memories. Berry's Hammond, for me, makes me think of family parties, makes me think of those times where, for whatever reason, you get in a room with like 7,000 of your cousins and your uncles and aunts and we'd be running around like crazy people while they are getting down. And Berry's Hammond to me is just one of those amazing voices that would echo through the room when that was all happening. So that's why I chose it. Okay, here we go with Berry's Hammond. They're going to talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
set up to ensure financial stability for, for, from a young age? I think there's a few things. I think the very first thing I would say is don't underestimate children and don't underestimate their ability to learn about money. Um, kids are actually much better at budgeting than we are as adults um, because I mean, I you can teach your children as young as three years old how to budget, and you can start off with what I call the jars, um, the jars game. And what you do is you give them three or four different jars, and you say, right, one jar is is for your spending money. You can buy what you want. One jar is to save. Another jar is for charity. Whatever you want to split them up into. I always think it's good to give them a charity jar. And the reason is if you get kids into a habit of learning to give, they become better at managing money and actually being more, it puts them in a position where they're more likely to invest when they're older because they don't have the fear of loss. Um, but I think educating kids is one and starting as early as you can. And what I would say to parents in terms of provisions is, you know, if you have the ability and means to do it, set up things like trust funds or children's ISAs, products that effectively are tax free. And, you know, I'm, you see, I'm that kind of auntie where. I'm busy, so I don't necessarily see my my nieces and nephews as often as I would like to. However, when it's their birthday, I don't want to buy them a toy that's going to make up noise and clutter up their mother's yard. I would rather put some money into a bank account that's going to um, gain from compound interest over a period of time that will be worth something to them when they're 18 and actually now need to start having a pot of money for their education or their first house or whatever the case may be. And there's lots of people who are similar to that. So I think putting those provisions in place allows people like me to make contributions to those sorts of things as well and encouraging your children to save in them and when they're teenagers or certainly when they start to get to that sort of double figures point you know these days I'm a big fan of is it the Henry accounts why I like those is it teaches kids how to spend on elect electronically we used you know your mum used to well I'm older my mum used to give me a pound and, you know, I would go to the shop and watch myself spend that on sweets or whatever foolishness. 
kids now are operating in a world where it's very much moneyless. And I think as we move forward, it, there's going to be less and less calls to actually have physical notes and coins. So getting them used to spending on the debit card and watching that balance go down again, psychologically prepares them for the future. Because how many of us have got clappy happy on a credit card because we didn't think we were spending real money? Definitely, definitely. Um in terms of moving on to the different age groups, do you feel that um, before the COVID-19 crisis, young people were given a realistic financial future in terms of, you know, the student fees being tripled and the housing market being so difficult for them to become a part of? Every generation has its challenges and COVID certainly doesn't help matters. But there's one thing that I love about the generations that we see coming through now. They're not as restricted mentally, I think, as some of the older generations have been. And I see a lot of young people now being in a space where they're willing to exploit the opportunities that are presenting themselves. They're much more tech savvy. They're much more prepared to do business online. They're much more prepared to engage with businesses online also. And I think that that means that whilst they may have their own challenges, they're definitely creating their own path and having new opportunities. One thing I will say about property and stuff of that nature, I do believe it's important for us to own things. I do think it's important for us to have a level of autonomy. But I also think that property and buying your first house and things of that nature can be a little bit overrated. And sometimes you can have people so focused on that that it means they miss other opportunities elsewhere. Long before I purchased my first property, I was investing in business and I recognised that, that, that it was an investment. I remember at one point having £10,000 and thinking, do I use that 10 grand to set up a business or do I use that 10 grand to buy a house? And I remember at the time thinking, well, if I set up the business and I make 100 grand, well, then I can actually buy a bigger house. So let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas really, you know, if that decision was, say, in my mum's hands, my mum would have said, girlfriend, go buy your house. <laughs> you must have security, mm. you know. But I don't, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, that didn't quite pan out the way it should have done. But my point being is I don't regret that decision because there's more than one way to skin a cat. And I think sometimes we we are so we so train our young people to say, you must do this and you must do that, that actually it, it takes them away from the things that they have the opportunity to do that we didn't have. They kind of become blinkered and they're just focused on that. There's only that one thing that I can do. Whereas then, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then it becomes a mark of success. And the thing is, it can, in my view, that could be a false marker of success because there are people out there that own properties that right now are broke. And there are people out there right now who don't own a property, maybe have investments or maybe have a business running, who actually have a lot more security. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 again, this is where education matters because the more you understand about it, what's going on and what and what money is and how it works the more you can have flexibility in how you go about it mm. um so what would you say are the most important practices that people should do on a daily weekly or monthly basis kind of get into training for what would you say are the best practices 
um, for financial stability. Whether, it, you, for example, it might be budgeting. You might have some other examples. I don't know. Yeah, there's quite, I mean, okay. I would say a few things. So budgeting is one, but I think the important thing with budgeting is don't bury your head in the sand and look at it. So even if it's once a month, even if it's once a quarter where you stop and you look, what am I spending in different areas? And is there any way I can make a saving or get some kind of cut in whatever I'm doing, go for it and do it. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think the other thing I would suggest is um, getting into the habit of investment. And you can start off investment with penny stocks. You know, not everything is about I've got to have thousands and thousands of pounds to invest. Um, and using, you know, small investment apps like Moneybox, for example, I think is a really good way of training yourself to be in a space of investing. I think what Corona and what's going on at the moment has demonstrated is the importance of an emergency fund. And people need to recognise the difference between having savings and having an emergency fund because they're two different things. Having savings is lovely, but actually your emergency fund should be six months of monthly expenses. Right now, people are in debt after one month of not being paid. And the reality of the matter is, is that what we're going to see happen next after this health crisis is out of the way is we're going to be in a recession and we're going to be in a deep one. And a recession is where the economy contracts and gets effectively gets smaller. And why this recession is going to be so deep is because this is the first time in modern history that governments all around the world have had to effectively manufacture money that doesn't really exist in order to prop people up. And the reason why they're doing that is because we are so indebted that actually, if they allow us to completely collapse, we may never recover. And there are too many constructs which are based on the parameters of a society generating money. I'll put it like that. So right now, there are going to be people who might just be getting through on the skin of their teeth. There are going to be people who are furloughed and thinking, okay, you know, that, that'll help me get through. But by the end of this, they're going to be in more debt. That means it's going to be much more inevitable that they're likely to default on that debt. And we're going to start to see um, all sorts of repercussions as a response to that, whether it's businesses closing, whether it's houses being repossessed, there's going to be a massive fallout. So if there is anything for people to learn from this situation is that if you have nothing else, build up an emergency fund. When you have your emergency fund in place, then you start thinking about your savings. And when you've got some savings in place, then you start focusing on investment. And investment is about getting your money to work for you instead of you being focused on working for your money because your money will not give you anything back once it's gone however if it's in a position where it's working for you you will benefit from it and you may not benefit from it much now but that's where compound interest becomes the eighth wonder of the world because as time goes by your benefits will increase 
Wow, you've given some great advice there. Um, definitely a couple of things that I hadn't have thought of. Um, but um, for now, we're going to go into the crisis in just a moment, into the COVID crisis. Um, but for now, we're going to play another one of your selections, which is Taurus Riley. She's royal. Why did you choose that selection? You know what? I think what every black woman loves about this song is that it came at a time when maybe we weren't feeling so royal and we weren't feeling ourselves. The reality of the matter is that black women are statistically the most entrepreneurial women in the world. We lead the way when it comes to starting businesses. The thing is, we're not so good at scaling them but we're the ones who are good at starting them. So I thought, you know, I love this song because it just gives every woman and the men who sing it to us a sense of pride of who we are and what we're all about. Okay, here we go. Ooh, natural beauty, you know. Tell, no, I've never been someone shy. Until I seen your eyes, still I had to try, yeah. Oh, yes, let me get my words right and then approach you. Woman, I'll treat you like a man is supposed to. You'll never have to cry, no. I know everyone can relate to when they find a special someone. And she's royal, yeah. So royal and I want her in my life I never know anyone So one of a kind, no The way she moves to her own beat She has the qualities of a queen She's a queen Ooh, ooh, what a natural beauty no need no makeup to be a cutie She's a queen She's a queen And when they ask what a good woman's made of She's not afraid and ashamed of who she is She's royal, yeah, so royal And I need her So one of a kind Until the night that I see you rise My queen So supreme I can see it in her eyes The way she smiles Hey, yes I and I I know the king and queen crown, see I'm tired So I'd never leave your side Just stick with me through the trial times oh. And she says she no mine Cause right I know good man is hard to find And she can't know about that giant line That's why she has no ties at this time Yeah I know many men are trying but she needs to be more than wine and dine because she's royal, yeah, so royal. And I want her in my life. I never know anyone so divine. 
Right. I've heard various things from different people in terms of there being no money out there, there being loads of money available. Um, are you aware of any help available for small businesses or for self-employed people at the moment with the current COVID-19 crisis? I'm aware of it. I'll be honest, how easy it is to access it is becoming the question. Um, the government have made various announcements. So, so the simplest form is this. Anybody who files a tax return and has less than £50,000 in profit will receive a payment in June that is 80% of their profit. Now, not 80% of their total profit. Let's say for argument's sake, you've you've paid your tax bill on the basis that your profit was £10,000, let's say. Uh, what will happen is they will break that £10,000 into an average monthly payment, which would be £833 or something like that. And then they will give you 80% of three months worth of that profit margin. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Um, so... That is a given, and from what I understand, we'll find out those figures at a, about mid about mid May um, for what we'll get in June. But there is a lot of people who have slipped through the gap, and even though there are grants and loans that are available, I have to be honest and say that you will have to go through your local authority to apply for them to see if you are eligible, but at the moment, there is only really a handful of businesses that I'm hearing about that are actually getting those loans. So would you say, from your experience then, um, those loans, grants or schemes, there's a low success rate or... Um, from what you've experienced in business actually getting that money? Um, I can't say from my experience. I can say from anecdotal evidence that I'm seeing, that seems to be the case. When I'm asking the question, how many people are applying for these loans and actually getting them, those numbers are very low in comparison to what I would expect them to be. And it seems that lots of people are slipping through the eligibility net. Right. Um, with that in mind, do you have any advice for those people that slip through the net? For example, those people that um, might have started up a business in the in the uh, in they might be in their first year of starting up a business, so therefore they don't fall into a lot of the, you know, the stipulations. What what advice would you have for them? I'm saying to people, where possible, keep doing business. Um, you see, a lot of people just stopped. And don't get me wrong, there are certain businesses where you don't have a choice but to do that. But there are also other businesses where there are ways in which you can continue to do business. And it's about rethinking your business model. And I do feel like there's not enough people that are doing that. Um, so I would say try and keep going wherever possible. Where it might not be possible... Um, you know, there is not, at the end of the day, one thing I will say, there is nothing wrong with taking a job, nothing. And right now, if getting some temporary employment is going to help you get through without getting yourself into further debt, do it. I mean, and I'm not saying this from a position of I wouldn't do it myself. I can tell you something throughout my self employed journey, I have cleaned, I have worked in bars. 
I have done all sorts of part-time jobs and side jobs and all sorts of things in order to supplement my income to survive whilst I'm trying to build and sustain my business. I'm very grateful that I'm now at a point of my life and career where I no longer have to do that. But let me tell you something. My youngest sister is also self-employed. And when all of this kicked off, you know, she and I looked at each other and said, listen, you know, if things really get bad and we've got to go stock some shelves at the supermarket, then so be it. Because, you know... At the end of the day, whilst endeavouring to do your business is admirable, you know, we've got to be realistic. And to me, there is absolutely no shame in taking a job, in having a job. You know, that doesn't stop you from doing what it is that you want to do. Sometimes it means you've got to work a little smarter, but it doesn't take it off the table. And I think sometimes people think self-employment or nothing, and it doesn't necessarily go that way. Okay, um, so what are your thoughts on the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme, um, which is for small businesses, aka SMEs? And do you know anyone that's been successful in getting one of those? I've heard of a few people that have got the loan. And again, what I would say is so I think this is about type of business that you're running. You see, for me, if you are a one-man band and businesses slowed down i don't think there's anything wrong with just taking a bit of a hiatus and if needs be taking a job or doing some freelance work and then coming back to your business when we're back up and running if you're running the kind of business small business where maybe you are employing a small group of people and you know you are in a position where there are maybe bits of work that you need to continue with during this period Yes, by all means, look at options like the interruption loan um, and see how it can benefit you. The reality, though, um, you see, I'm always of the mindset that wherever you can avoid borrowing, do. And why? Because what you've got to remember is, number one, you've got to pay it back. And number two, you're probably going to have to pay it back with interest. At the end of the day, our government is not stupid. They have purposely created loan systems because, like I say, right now they're effectively manufacturing money to prop up the economy. That money is going to have to come back from somewhere. And at the moment, you can't rely on the taxpayer if the taxpayer is unemployed. So you can only get taxes when people are generating money. So putting loans out and things of that nature is a way of generating money because if you think about it, they'll earn extra by getting interest and all of these other things. So when you start to look at the mechanisms of how they work, for me, take a loan if it's necessary. But if there is any other way that you can find to do it, use the other way. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of today's Reggae Uprising podcast for the financial special part one. Please make sure you subscribe to be the first to hear part two of this financial special, which will be out same time next Wednesday. As always, blessed love.